0: Welcome to episode 161 of the Reformed Brotherhood.
1: I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. Oh, the for you, in this world I Je- Jesse, are you there? Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm well. Did you hear the crickets or was that just me? I, I think the crickets were real. We, we have some sad news, but it's it's in God's providence that the Society of Reform Podcasters has possibly just for the time being, but maybe permanently decided to uh, shut down shop. Oh, no. Yeah. So what's it been like two years now? Probably almost two years. I think so. We had this little experiment going called the Society of Reform Podcasters, and the idea behind the Society of Reformed Podcasters was a group of like-minded podcasters who held to reform theology, kind of broadly defined, uh, would help each other with their podcasts. And one of the things about podcasting that is really common is this phenomena called pod fading, where basically like podcasting takes a lot more time than people think. So I think most of the time people think like, oh, yeah, you record for like an hour a week and then like that's it but right. there's there's editing, depending on how much editing you do. Like we do very little editing, and it still takes me probably a half an hour to forty five minutes to get the episode ready. You have to right. post the episode. You have to share it on social media. There's all these different things that have to happen. And so a lot of the shows on the uh, Society of Reform Podcasters, for whatever reason, have pod faded, and you know most of the time it's people making good decisions about priorities in their life, right? So Conrad has a lot going on with a lot of different stuff. Uh, you know, Carrie Gephardt has a lot of stuff going on. Drew, Mary, and um, Dale from According to Christ, the two thieves. Like, there's just other stuff going on in life, and as Christian men, particularly, most of these guys who have had a conflict between um, ministry, like real life ministry, and their families, and then podcasting have made the right choice to like shut down their podcasts. So right. the result of that is that the society of reform podcaster for the most part has become like two or three shows that are not always even publishing regularly. So I'm making the decision along with Jesse and I talked with Carrie uh, and uh, Conrad about this to prioritize some other stuff in my life besides keeping the society of reform podcasters going. So and I'm
0: thankful for all the work that you've invested in that. And I see this hopefully as maybe a temporary hiatus as other people kind of sort out what's going on in their worlds. And as God calls us back to different parts of ministry, what you say is really right on. Like now, ever since like we've done the podcast, when I listen to podcasts and I hear one, that's just like really exceptional, like the editing is really good. There's music, there's content, there's stuff going through. I think, man, that took somebody a lot of time and a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of resources just to put together. So just by way of example, so the other podcast, one of the ones that was on that, the Fast God Stuff podcast, is like we, we put together episodes when we're able to do that. But because that one has like music and some other things, it takes a crazy amount of time. Yeah. Just by way of example, we Conrad and I sat down and we spent three hours just yesterday recording for a podcast, that will only be 30 minutes by definition. Yeah. So it just takes time because you're working through stuff. So there is a new episode. I'm just totally shamelessly plugging this. That's there okay. is a new episode in the future soon coming out of Fast God Stuff, and it involves a game show. And that's part of the reason why it took three hours for us yeah. just to record probably like 10 minutes of audio.
1: Yeah. So if if you're listening to this show via the Society of Reformed Podcasters mega feed. Uh, It will no longer be updated. So you should go check out all of the member shows uh, that you love. Fast God Stuff, Reformed Pilgrims, Shieldwall Podcast. Uh, I'm also shutting down the Reformed Standard. Uh, I just don't have time for a a third podcast. Um, But check out all those shows, Gospel Changes Everything, um, and, and make sure you go subscribe to their direct feed so that way you don't miss any of the great content. Boom.
0: I love it. All right. So enough bad news. Let's get to some affirmations. What you got?
1: I'm affirming uh, somebody that I feel like the reform world should know more, but don't. So, you know, in like the, like the 17th and 18th century, right? There's like Calvin and Turretin. And then most people's like range of knowledge. Maybe they know about Ursinus with the Heidelberg Catechism. They might know some of like the Westminster divines, but there's this guy named Herman Witsius. That most reformed folk don't really know about or think about. Um, But he's like a huge, significant figure in covenant theology. So I'm affirming Herman Witsius and his book, uh, which is called The Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man, Comprehending a Complete Body of Divinity. (laughs) and and more or less it's a, it. it's a systematic theology book that is organized around the concept of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And so so they rather than follow like kind of the standard reformed um systematic sequence, you know, you start with like scripture, theology proper, trinity, like that whole sequence that most reformed systematics go through, he starts with the covenant of works and kind of unfolds theology from there. And I just want to show you he he ties in other areas of theology in a brilliant way. And I just want to read this here. So he's talking about the covenant of works. He's talking about Adam at, at in his initial created state. And he says here, Adam could not from the bare contemplation of nature without revelation discover this mystery. He's talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Brilliant. And he says just a little bit earlier, it is impossible to suppose... Adam ignorant concerning his creator of that which God did not suffer his posterity to be ignorant of at this time, especially as God created man to be the herald of his being and perfection in the new world. So the argument that Witsius is making is that we should not presuppose that Adam did not understand the doctrine of the Trinity because Adam had at the very least the same amount of knowledge of God that the Christians would have after the coming of Christ. And here's where he links it. He uh, points to something Zekinus says, he says, most of the fathers were of the opinion that Adam, seeing he was such and so great a friend of God before his fall, had sometimes seen God in bodily appearance and heard him speak. And Zekinus adds, but this was always the son of God. So his reasoning here is that Adam knew God in the son, and therefore Adam had to have known the doctrine of the Trinity. And so this is actually going to come into play a little bit tonight as we have our conversation, because there's a a feature of our text in Micah here that I think is really, really rich Christologically that we're going to talk about. But Zekinus or uh, uh, Witsius here, it's really an amazing book. Uh, You can get it relatively cheap. Uh, It's in two volumes. You can get it for like 20 bucks on Lagos. I don't actually know anywhere you can get a print copy. So check it out. Uh, The Economy of Covenants Between God and Man is the title. Uh, Herman Witsius is the author. And it is just super good.
0: How dare you tease our conversation in the affirmation section of the podcast? I know. It's not like we've never done that before. (laughs) I've only heard of this dude, but mainly my only recollection is because his name is awesome. Yes, it is. It's a super sweet name. That's a really great. That's a strong affirmation right there. What do you got? Nothing that good. (laughs) (laughs) My affirmation is far, far more worldly. So everybody prepare yourselves. So a couple weeks ago, I'm a little bit late on this. I wanted to mention it last week, but had a better affirmation. So this week, I'm affirming Fitbit because just a couple weeks ago, Google purchased Fitbit for $2.1 billion, and I'm kind of bullish on this new union because I'm a big Fitbit user. You're also a big Fitbit user. It's true, I am. I really enjoy Fitbit. So I don't know. I'm not bullish on this in the sense that I don't know how much value Google is going to actually be able to extract out of this because they've actually had a string of kind of failures in this space. But what I love about it is from like a user's perspective, bringing this into the Google ecosystem is only going to be awesome. So I'm actually pretty stoked about the Fitbit products because I've used like several iterations of Fitbits. And I just love it. They're just the right mix for me of encouragement without being like super annoying and like demanding of me with respect to health. But like especially, I don't know how you feel, but the sleep tracking
1: is like pretty awesome
0: for me. Like yeah. do you use yours to, to track your sleep? Do you wear I it do. while you're sleeping?
1: Yeah, it's kind of depressing for me because I don't sleep very well. Um, oh, that is depressing. But uh, but it's nice. So I'm not normally one of those people that's like upset that Google knows everything about me. But this actually makes me a little nervous because <laughs> now, now Google Google already uh, knows where I am. They know what I'm browsing. Uh, They are able to see like what route I take to work. They just know your heart rate now. And now they're going to know my heart rate, (laughs) what time I'm sleeping, (laughs) how well I'm sleeping. If I log my food, they're going to know what I'm eating. And I don't think it's going to be long before it's like they're correlating your heart rate with things you're browsing online and making assumptions about like what excites you. So like this is actually probably going to lead to like the next step of advertising because before it was like they could track what you liked based on what you clicked. Now it's going to be like they can track what you like based on when your heart rate increases when you're browsing the internet.
0: That's basically like already lost though, right? I mean like Apple already does that basically. So it's, what I like about this is from like a user perspective, I think it kind of legitimizes Fitbit a little bit more because really how much further could Fitbit go on its own? Like it wasn't trying to essentially compete with Apple and the iWatch or the iWatch, the Apple Watch. So this is, I like that it's kind of Google saying there's got to be some value here for us to use. It may be a straight leverage play, but I'm kind of interested to see how they bring it into the ecosystem. And this is probably like more helpful for you because you're straight Android, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I have an iPad, but yeah, everything else is Android. So it'll be interesting. I'm
0: just curious to see what they do. I really enjoy my Fitbit, but like I'm so i've this is where I, I when i run i use a garmin so i do carry the fitbit with me but for everything else i just use the fitbit but again i like that it's like not super intrusive because i've seen from other brothers and sisters who own different types of tracking devices sometimes those devices are like really demanding of you like they actually make you feel bad like they're kind of like health bullies yeah you know i mean like if you don't get enough steps if you don't burn enough calories if you're not standing enough Maybe this makes it clear. I'm looking at you. They're like, so they're like, it's hey, crazy. fatty,
1: get off your butt and walk. <laughs> yeah, like Fitbit will never do that to you. <laughs> well, like, they will I'll now. They'll never call you a fatty. They're going to be like, it looks like you ordered seven pizzas last week <laughs> and gained six pounds. And your heart rate is like a resting heart rate of 90. Perhaps right. sh- they're going to start sending you like advertisements for cardiologists.
0: Yeah, that would actually be, like, it would be hilarious if, like, I'm I'm at a pub and I go to order another beer and, like, they'll watch, like, my Fitbit buzzes and it's like, I don't think so. That's not a wise decision. Do you think
1: that's well? We've hailed you an Uber. (laughs) Go home. (laughs) Yeah. You know, now that I'm making fun of it and talking about all the ways that Google's going to invade my life through my Fitbit, I'm actually kind of like, actually, you know, that'd be kind of nice. If, like, you're out at the pub and it, it can tell that, like, you've had maybe a little bit too much and it, like... It's like, maybe you should get an Uber. Would you Would you like us to call an Uber for you? I'd be like, yes, Google, that'd be great. Yeah. There's a salad at home waiting for you. Yes.
0: You yeah, try, you try to
1: order candy online, and they're like, no, I don't think so. <laughs>
0: Who's ordering candy online? I don't know.
1: I don't know. I order everything <laughs> online. Oh, uh, that's fair. I ordered batteries so, online. I couldn't even be bothered to go to the store to get my batteries. Really? Yeah. What kind of batteries are we talking about? Are they weird batteries or normal batteries? No, it's just like AAA batteries. I ordered like a 50 deal? of them for like like two and a half bucks.
0: Man, that's yeah. impressive. So can I, can I tell a quick story about batteries? Yes. Because, real quick. Is that all right? Yeah. If I can use the word quick more in that one sentence. It's
1: fine. Just do it quick. So thanks. Well done.
0: <laughs> so my father-in-law, who is like an amazing, sweet, generous man, he does this thing called geocaching. Are you familiar with this? I am. So it's, it's like basically treasure hunting for adults. You know, you go put something somewhere like in the woods or in some kind of area that's public and you put coordinates online, somebody uses their GPS and then they go take those coordinates and they go try to find the thing. So he's part of this big, massive geocaching group. And one of the things they do every year is instead of doing like this secret Santa exchange, like this local chapter, what they do is they go, they get a giant hat. In my mind, I like to think of it as a Santa hat. They throw in then all these coordinates to where gifts are hidden. And then you pull out one of these coordinates and you go find it. What he gives every year, because he's a tech guy, is he gives what you're talking about, like a giant, I think it's like 75 pack of batteries. Like it's a serious investment, like a massive And so every year he gives that, and I think that's actually a super good gift, and then also in particular a really good gift for those who are into technology. And he goes and hides it on a a cul-de-sac behind like a guardrail. So I was laughing the other day because he was telling me that he was getting prepared to do this whole thing all over again. He does it every year. And he went to go place the new gift for this year and found that the old gift was still there. (laughs) Jackpot yeah it's like but like so these batteries have been sitting out in the elements for like 365 days
1: yeah they probably don't work that well (laughs) yeah
0: but he orders them online and gets like this is the biggest like i kid you not like the biggest package of batteries (laughs) i've ever seen like i was just blown away like you have to mount them like he has to like literally like really duct tape these things to the back of this guide rail because there's no way it would hold up it's a huge pack of batteries like i was coveting the batteries i was like can i just have those batteries it was amazing.
1: Yeah, it's funny because Amazon has this really great business model. It's not great in terms of like good for the economy, but it's like a good business model in terms of good for consumers and good for Amazon. They they identify what people are like, the kinds of like generalized things people are buying online. And then right. they then they find someone who will make those for them super cheap. So then when you start searching for stuff, you that's where you come up with these like Amazon Basics. So, right. like Ashley, my wife, Ashley, your sister goes online to buy uh, dog poop bags. And so we, we ordered them the first time, and we thought we were just getting, like, a normal amount. You know, you, like, get them at the pet store. You buy them in packages of, like, six. And it came, and it was, like, it was, we thought it was 120 bags of poopy roll of poopy bags, and it was yeah. 120 rolls of poopy bags. <laughs> and the dog <laughs> is three years old, and we just now had to order our second batch of poopy bags. <laughs> so it, it's, like, the batteries are Amazon <laughs> Basics. You can get cables. Uh, this so just did, turned like, into it, it, an it, this just turned into an affirmation of, of Amazon apparently.
0: I guess so. Did it literally show up like in a giant box and you've just got rolls of bags? Yeah, out?
1: like we had like the first time we got it, we were like, where are we gonna put all these poopy bags? That's hilarious. Yeah.
0: I love it. All right, well move us into the denial range here. What are you denying this week? Um so
1: I'm denying game consoles. But not so much for why you might think I'm denying them because I really want a Nintendo Switch and they're way too expensive. So I went over to uh, to Ashley and I went over to a friend's house and while the girls went out for a walk, um, I hung out and we played video games, which I haven't sat and played console video games in probably like 10 years. And the Nintendo Switch is like this really cool little device because you can use it like a Game Boy, like a handheld device, but then you can also dock it and it takes what's on the screen for the handheld device and it like sends it to your television and you can play with a controller on the television. So it's like really, that's why it's a Nintendo switch is it like converts really well. So I'm like, this is cool. Like this is a, this is a game system that I could actually play. And it's, it's Nintendo. So it's usually like more fun games instead of like really serious, like high graphics games. So like I was playing like a Marvel Avengers Alliance game, like they have Pokemon or like smash brothers, like just fun, goofy games, like no real thought games. And I looked it up and the Nintendo Switch is like $300. Whoa. And I'm like, dang, like $300. That's a lot of money. So um, in other news, thank you for all your donations to the reform. I'm just (laughs) totally just kidding. But like, man, these systems have gotten so expensive. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. You're not joking. I know. So I need Amazon to make like an Amazon basic Switch. So when you order it, it's it's like $7 and you get like six of them. Get on that Amazon. <laughs> uh, I love it. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I yeah. So I see this on TV. This is like the system too where like it's got options that are like there's games that are more like physically oriented, right? right? Like yeah. you put the switch like on your thigh and you can run around and there's like a right. steering wheel shaped kind of like joystick where you can like do stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the predecessor like the, the descendant of the Nintendo Wii, only not yeah. as like destructive. You're not know, like smashing into stuff like you were at the Wii. But it's a cool system, and I would get one, except it's so expensive. Very clever. Yeah, Yeah. that
0: is more expensive than I would have thought. I'm with you. I haven't played video games in a while, but part of me thinks if I did... It would be awesome. Yeah. Like, I would love it, just kind of getting into that mindset, having, like, some time. Because there's, is there anything like video games that help you kind of have a little bit of a break and decompress yeah. and rest? It's something unique about them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I play video games, but, like, I usually play them on my phone or, like, on, a, on my computer. I haven't had, like, a console game in a really long time. And part of the reason I haven't had a OG. console is, like, we really only have one TV that I could use that for. So if I want to play games, like, Ashley can't watch TV. But with this, like... If I'm playing on the TV and Ashley wants to come and watch TV, I just take the thing out of the dock. I don't even have to restart the game. It just converts to the small thing. And then when she's done, I just put it back on. So it's like really like it's a really interesting design feature that solves like a major problem that video game consoles have had. Leave it
0: to Nintendo. They know know. what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, they have to be gimmicky if they want to have a hope of competing with PlayStation and Xbox. So
0: that's true.
1: Yeah. So what about you? What
0: are you denying? All right, so my denial focuses around language, and it's mainly out of a conversation I just had with my wife. And let me just say at the outset, she's saying that I'm innate about this. Okay. So that is the color, hopefully, that will kind of provide some shading on what I'm about to say. So I have to ask this, though, in the form of a question to you, so as not to, like, have you biased toward what I'm about to say. So. This type of, this thing has just been installed in my area. My brother Gordy knows what I'm talking about here, but they've just put in what I'm going to call like a traffic circle. You know what I'm talking
1: about? Yeah. Like a roundabout.
0: What? Ah, there we go. What do you call that thing? That's what you call it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I probably normally call it a roundabout, but like in New England, they're usually called rotaries.
0: Yes. Okay. So like, that's the word I was using and I was like, we, it just opened today. So it's the Lord's day for us and also for you. <laughs> so we, <laughs> I don't know why I was trying to make it sound like that's just my unique experience. It's the Lord's day for everybody as we're recording this. It's true. And so the first time this was opened, and so our, um, the church is on the other side of this traffic circle, and I have been calling it all day a rotary, and my wife has been saying to me, that sounds really like uppity, you need to call it a roundabout. And I was like, it's not a roundabout though. Like it's a rotary. I'm pretty sure like if you actually look up like department of transportation documents, they're going to call it a rotary. I understand what around, but a roundabout to me sounds like very
1: European and continental. Right. right. Then that's these, my understanding is like this kind of traffic function or traffic feature started in Europe. Like it's a British thing mostly. Mm -hmm. And they called them roundabouts. So like, the only reason I ever call them a roundabout is cause that's like the first time I ever heard of them. But like, I've always heard them. Like when you see signs in Massachusetts form where we used to live, the sign yeah. says now entering traffic rotary. Yes. So like, yeah, I don't know. So I
0: guess the denial is more about like, I'm denying against me being perceived as somebody that's uppity. I'm just calling it a rotary not because it's like a fancy term, but because like, that's a term I know. And I'm pretty sure technically that's what it's called because Nobody talks about like this is Australian, but it's obviously derivative of British English. Like when you go for a walk, like or like a meandering walk, nobody's like, "Are you going on a walk about?" Like I understand this is a specific thing, but yeah, the about the about kind of suffix that's like distinctly continental. So I'm like, come on, people, embrace the American way. It's a rotary. Make it happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like this just died. I'm kind of stunned <laughs> at that the fact that you would be called uppity for calling it a rotary. I think Jen's being innate. Yeah, thank you. That's now that thank is you. part of the public record now for all time. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Like I don't. What's what sounds uppity about rotary? If anything, I think roundabout sounds more uppity. Well, so I
0: think that in her mind, the rotary sounds too technical. But it really did get to the point on the way home. That she was like, can you really please stop calling it that? And I was like, why? Like, she was like, genuinely, can you refer to it as a roundabout? And I was like, no, I can't, actually. On sheer principle of the English language. And that's what it's called.
1: (laughs) Yeah. According to Wikipedia, the U.S. Department of Transportation adopted the term, quote, modern roundabout to distinguish those that require entering driveways to give way to others. The article follows the convention that refers to other types of traffic circles or rotaries. Many old traffic circles remain in northeastern U.S. Some modern roundabouts are elongated to encompass additional streets, but traffic always follows a loop. In the United States, traffic engineers typically use the term rotary for large-scale circular junctions between expressways or control access highways. Rotaries typically feature high speeds inside the circle and on approaches. Oh. So I don't know whether what you have is a roundabout or a rotary. Well, that's, so
0: now I'm feeling there's like a strange weight of conviction that's falling <laughs> upon me in real time.
1: All right, we're going to have because, some confession time. Yeah, Sorry, well, let Jen, conf- that we called you a Let me confess
0: that this is like a single lane, very tiny, so maybe it is a roundabout. Maybe it's all about size. And rotary is large scale and roundabout is tiny miniature version. It's like the mini me of rotaries. So I guess. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to apologize after this.
1: (laughs) Uh, That's all I got to say. Yeah. Well,
0: at at the risk of extending this just a little bit further, because I know you've lived in New England for some time now. Do you enjoy a good rotary or roundabout? Are you down with that? Or do you find it to be like intimidating and you'd just rather have a traffic light?
1: I don't think they're intimidating. I'm not entirely sure exactly how they improve traffic flow. I mean, I think they do, but it's one of those things where I can't quite get my head around how they do that. I think it's like they, the Trinity. Well, no, but I think <laughs> I think they I think they improve traffic flow. When it's not busy, because then you don't have to stop. Like, if there's no cars, you just go into the loop and come out. But I feel like when it's busy, they seem like a death trap. But I don't know that I've ever known anybody that's been in an accident on a rotary or a roundabout, so... I don't know. I'll
0: report back to you because this is new in our area, though I'm familiar with them. And I was watching the video that the Department of Transportation put out in anticipation of this. Yeah. Because here's the great experiment of the rotary or the roundabout, and that is you really have to trust everybody because they have to use their blinker. And for some reason, people hate using their blinker. So what I'm concerned about is when it's very busy, and that's presumably why they put in this rotary, is because the area in which it's in ends up with a lot of backed up traffic. When it's the most busy part of the day, for those of you who are not familiar, like when you're in the rotary, this is ridiculous that we're talking about this. When you're in the rotary, you have the right of way. So you're not supposed right. to stop for anybody or let anybody in. Right.
1: Everybody's so supposed the to yield coming into the rotary.
0: Exactly. So if that's true, I'm with you. I'm a little bit having, I'm having some trouble conceiving of this because what we're basically saying is it's possible in my mind that one one outlet of the rotary is going to continue just to feed traffic in, and nobody would be able to get in, or few people would be able to get in, depending on where they're exiting the rotary.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. I don't know. Uh, do you know what this makes me think of? Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's the Christmas vacation movie where they, yes, go, to, they National go to Europe. Lampoon. Yeah, National yes. Lampoon. Is it called Is it called yes. European Vacation? Or Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, they get into the big roundabout around Big Ben and they just drive around in circles until it's nighttime. <laughs> it's my favorite scene in all of those movies. They're just driving around and around and around and around.
0: Uh, speaking about going around and around and around.
1: Man, I was going to make the same segue. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some mica.
0: Let's do it. We're back into Micah cast
1: and we're we're in chapter
0: 4 and we're looking at verses 1 through 7. So like without any further delay, would you like to read those seven, seven verses in chapter 4?
1: Yes. We're this is actually kind of two pericopes. Uh the the 6 and 7 is a second pericope, but we're going to lump it in Doubling here. Up. So starting in verse uh verse one of chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever." In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore.
0: So what a beautiful passage, right? Once again, and if this sounds familiar, it's for good reason. So at least here from what we talked about in the past, Micah's prophetic vision is shifting from this impending judgment in the short term to the final days. Like you read the latter days when the messianic reign of God is established in Zion. And again, if this sounds very reminiscent, it's because the first part of this oracle verses one through five, it's essentially the identical thing that Isaiah talks about in chapter two of his book.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of those passages. I, you know, I, I talk a lot about doing like Bible in a year reading plans And one of the things that's tough, you know, everybody gets stalled out in um, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy just because it's difficult reading and there doesn't feel like there's a lot of momentum. But where I actually struggle the most is like right towards the end of the prophets Cause it's like, it's like, you're getting pounded by like the evilness and the darkness of Israel. And like, then you get to, you get to the beginning of Matthew and it's like, you can finally, like, you can finally take a breath. And like, this is one of those spots in Micah where it feels like that. We just came out of three chapters of more or less straight judgment, like grotesque analogies about building walls and cities out of people's blood and bodies about cannibalism, the darkness, the oppression. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's like we get dragged forward into the consummate hope of Israel, which is the consummate hope of all people. And suddenly we can breathe again. And it really is like, I read it this morning again during my devotions and it was like, like I could take a deep breath. It was like a good sigh and it just felt good to read this.
0: Well, it's very refreshing because what we see always with God's plan, and we've talked about this before, even in our modern evangelical era, so to speak, error, no, era, not error, sorry, (laughs) is that, that's the New England accent. Maybe it is is our our modern evangelical (laughs) era. It could be, but I hope not in what I'm about to say is we always have in here the the law and the gospel. And for me, what we have here is this embodiment of here is Micah laying down, in many ways, the law. This is how you've transgressed God himself. This is how you've gone against him. How as people who are prideful that you've actually incurred the wrath of God. And then all of a sudden there is this, here is salvation. Here is the way out that God has provided for his people. Here is the ram in the thicket. And so you're right. There is almost a sense in which we suddenly, it's as if we've been running hard, trying to achieve something for ourselves. And God says, stop. Yeah. And we can take a breath and fill our lungs again and catch our breath. So I'm, I'm with you. Like there's something refreshing in this. And, um, yeah, like I, I assume you were preparing, like when you, you texted me this morning <laughs> and said something about like, there's all these like wonderful Christological themes. in yeah. this. And because I was trying to be like funny, but also it seemed like I was, probably from your perspective, being more of a jerk, I text it back like, oh, oh, is this passage about Jesus? Like yeah. question mark, exclamation point. But that's like the, the whole point is like in saying that we're seeing in here, what the prophet is doing is he's bringing together, telescoping, I guess, if you will, this, this sense where he's obviously addressing in real time, almost like eternally contemporary, the issues of the day, by talking about what God about is about to do. Yeah. And yet also in this is the richness of the full salvation of the blood sacrifice of the covering that Christ brings for us. That's just as relevant then as it was now, maybe even more so in that sense.
1: Yeah. So let's break this down a little bit. So we we got verses one and two, and you know what, what's amazing about this, right? If you just go back to three verse 12, it's talking about how Zion and Jerusalem will be plowed over like a field, right? Right. There's going to be this heap of ruins And the temple, it's talking about the temple specifically here. The temple is going to be like a wooded forest on top of a hill. Like there's not going to be any structure. Uh, It's going to be ruins. It's going to be like a field. And then immediately it like flips over to this scene where now that same mountain, which was a field and a a heap of ruins, is now established as the highest of all the mountains. So it's using this image. Obviously, like we don't think that like in the last days like all of a sudden this hill in Jerusalem is going to like pop out of the ground and there's going to be like this immediate spurt of like geographic or geological change in Jerusalem. I mean, maybe, but I don't think that that's what this is saying. But, but what it's saying is like out of all the hills and in, in in ancient worlds or in ancient uh, like worldviews where your city was and, and the hill kind of represented um the essence of your city or your people, right? You think about like the seven, the seven hills of Rome, right? They talk about the hills or Mount Zion, like this idea that the mountain that your city is on, or the hill that your city is on being representative of your people is a really prominent theme. And so what this is saying here is like the people of Israel, God's people and God's mountain, God's hill will be elevated such that all of the other peoples of the world are going to look to it. And there's, there's some really interesting language here. So in, um, The end of verse one, beginning of verse two, it says the people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, and and then here's what they say. The actual literal language is like the people shall river to it. They shall flow like a river up this hill. So we've talked about how there's this like reversal of expectations in Micah, where, you know, we see like this language that shows us just how surprising the salvation of the Lord is. And even in this one little way, like it's so surprising, the mountain will be so significant that even the gravity that like the, the imagery of water rolling down a hill will be reversed. So now we have, instead of water rolling down a hill, We have people flowing up the hill, like a river to flow into the Lord's presence to worship him. And they say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So now, now even in this text, right? uh, The, the people of Israel could never have, have conceived of an, of a time where the Lord didn't have a temple, right? That was just not something they could have conceptualized. So when the temple was destroyed, it was a significant thing. But if you look carefully, even in this passage, He's not talking about a temple. The mountain of the Lord is the house of Jacob. He just got done saying that the temple will be destroyed, and now he says, let's go to the, up the mountain of the Lord to the house of Jacob. So there's this foreshadowing, and this is where we're going to get into the Christology aspect here in just a minute. There's this foreshadowing of what's said at the end of Revelation, that there will no longer be a need for a temple because the Lord will be the temple and he will dwell among his people. That's the right. eschatological hope. Not, not some, and, and I, I have... There are people that I know that are dispensationalists that I love and respect, and, and they all exist on this spectrum of like super literalist, crazy, the temple's going to be rebuilt exactly like it was to more figurative, but they all believe in a rebuilt temple. But all throughout the Old Testament, it's clear the hope is not the temple. Like You can't be right. a dispensationalist and read a passage like this and not abstract it from chapter three completely and understand that there's a temple. There's no reference to to a temple in this passage anywhere except for this phrase house of the Lord. But we know because immediately before that, the house of the Lord is destroyed. The physical house of the Lord is destroyed.
0: Right. And it all hangs from Micah on this reference to these latter days. Right. And to your point, that phrase is designating like this new epoch for the prophet that lies some point in the hidden future. So without getting wrapped up in like, well, when is it that he's speaking about what we know for sure, as you've just said, is the new epoch is a complete alteration of history in every dimension. And it is the goal toward which all these events are sovereignly striving. So this idea that it's going to be so radically redefined that even this he uses this example of gravity, like I said, this flowing of the river is going to go up the mountain. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is what really struck out to me, is that this idea that the, the highest of the mountains, the pagans worshipped their gods at the mountain shrines. And there was a sense in which when, of course, you're at the top of the mountain, anybody that's ever climbed to some kind of peak and looked out, gives you a sense of transcendence. So it makes it makes sense that they would plant themselves there as an act of worship. But Israel's God, who's worshipped on Mount Zion, will establish himself in the eyes of all races and all nations as the only true and living God, even as he is worshipped today. So what's interesting is the spiritual significance of Mount Zion was actually disproportionate to his physical size. It's not the highest mountain, geologically speaking, in that region. But this goes back And here we see like the continuity of the scriptures to something that Jesus says when he's quoting John the Baptist in Luke three, he says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Yeah. So here's Micah bringing in these wonderful terms, totally redefining every essence of life itself, including kind of the physical reality, the spatial, the understanding of gravity itself, and saying that regardless of the size of Mount Zion, God himself is bigger than all of that, but representative by which he's saying, God is going to make himself great among all the nations and all will look to him and all will see him. And where else do we see that fulfillment, including like this idea of being high and lifted up, except in Jesus Christ?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it really is. Um, we talked about this last week. Like it really is amazing how consistent throughout the whole scripture these images are. Last week t- we talked about this idea of chaos being uh, indicative of God's absence and how right. God, God's wrath and his judgment takes the form of him withdrawing his restraint. And then we have here, like, you ready to get into the Christology of this? Like this this is another yeah, one of those like, blew my mind things, right? Let's so, do it. We get to verse um, the end of verse 2, and it says, Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their, plowshare, their swords into plowshares, so on and so forth. Now, it's certainly possible that the he shall judge of verse 3 is pointing back to he may teach in verse 2, which was clearly talking about Yahweh. But I actually right. think that it's more accurate to read he shall judge as a reference to the word of the Lord. So we've talked about this before the, the phrase, the word of the Lord throughout the old Testament, especially in the prophets actually takes on this personalized force. Like it's the word of the Lord. It's not just a fancy way to say God said, the word of the Lord is actually an agent that comes and acts and has will and desire and expresses himself. So the word of the Lord comes forth from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord judges between people. The word of the Lord yes. decides disputes. And because of what the word of the Lord does in preaching the law to the nations, that's what causes them to beat their their spears into pruning hooks. And so it's funny because what I was going to do for my denial today is I, I just got back onto Twitter for a long time all I was using Twitter for was like promotions for like the podcast and my blog. Like I had software that pushed links over to those platforms and I didn't ever really log into them, but I logged back into Twitter this week just to kind of see what was going on. And I don't even know how this guy got in my list, but there was a PC USA guy who his, his comment basically said, if you think that the old Testament talks specifically about Jesus, then you're an anti-Semite and, and, I was oh. like, what are you talking about? I didn't really want to oh. go further than that. I mean, I tweeted back to him and I was like, well, Jesus, Jesus says that the Psalm some of the Psalms are about him. The author of Hebrews says, you know, that the Psalms are about the Son. So I think your standard is messed up. But, right. but there's a whole contingency of people, not even just in the liberal PCUSA, right? Even within certain quarters of Reformed theology, Derek Thomas, for example, will say that like we shouldn't read the phrase, let us make man in our own image in the, the opening chapters of uh, Genesis. We shouldn't read that as a reference to the Trinity. But when you look at a passage like this, and then you look at something like Revelation 21, which is in, in a very real sense, is... Uh, the divine commentary on this passage and other prophetic eschatology right. passages, it's really clear. It's possible that the, the original author wasn't seeing this, and, and it doesn't change much about the meaning, whether the original author thought he was writing about, you know, Yahweh and sort of like this vague unif like unitary but plural sense or whether he understood as someone like witsius would argue that the prophets knew more about the trinity than we we usually think they let on but i want to go real quick to genesis uh to revelation uh 20 uh 21 here let me pull it up so while i'm doing that can you pull up uh can you read uh let's do micah 4 2 through 4 again four, two through four. Yeah. Go ahead and read it again. Man, it's a good thing. We got technology. I know.
0: All right. So here's Micah four, two through four. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. All right. Hold hold on right
1: there. So the nations come up, right? Right. Uh, Revelation 21, 26. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter nor anyone who does what is detestable. So, so the city comes down, the nations flow into it, uh, and right. they will, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. All right, go ahead.
0: For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, but neither shall they learn war anymore.
1: All right. But- so, so what we have in Micah, right? We have, uh, the nations, uh, the, the glory of Zion, the word of the Lord goes forth to the nations and, and they are coming into Zion. They're receiving teaching And the house of the Lord is on the hill of Zion, right? The house of the Lord, which is in the Old Testament, is typically referring to the temple. But immediately previously in verse in chapter three, Micah makes it clear that the temple is destroyed. He's not talking about the temple. So here, starting in verse 22 of Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the lamb by its light by its light. Will the nations walk and the Kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. So, So we have in Micah, we have this really clear reference to the fact that Yahweh, God himself will teach the nations, right? The the people will come into his presence. They will flow into uh, the new Zion, onto the mountain of the Lord, uh, into the house of Jacob, and they will be taught by God. And then the word of God goes forth and judges between the people and establishes justice on the earth. Well, then we look over at, at Revelation and that judge that temple, that glory of the Lord is Jesus. It's not just God, it's the God almighty and the lamb. So even even if we want to say like, this is not a direct reference to the son per se, we still have God teaching the people. And so at the very least, what we say is revelation is expanding our understanding of this passage to understand that it's not a, a Unitarian God. Mike is not talking about a Unitarian God, even if he right. didn't know it, which I think he did, but even if he didn't know it, Micah was talking about the sun and, and that you read Calvin, you read all of them. They'll say, doubtless, this is Christ. Like there's no doubt that yes. the word of the Lord in this picture is Christ. For sure. Somehow yeah, in our more sure. modern context, we've lost sight of the fact that the prophets are receiving direct revelation from God. Why would we be surprised that they have a better understanding of theology than, than, than we who have not received, you know, immediate direct revelation from God might? Right. I mean, I think if you
0: just read this on the face, what you should come to, just logically speaking, is the sense that God is setting us up for something, right? Yeah. I mean, is it, it's almost as if what we have in Micah is a puzzle piece and there's a divot in it. And then we have Jesus who fits exactly into the puzzle piece that Micah has given us. And so in this new epoch, the one that he's describing here, all of these old earthly religious representations are being passed away. Yeah. And through the priesthood of the ascended Jesus, the church comes directly to this heavenly reality. That's the beauty of this. Yeah. So all these earthly, this earthly religious center that he describes, it's being eclipsed by the coming of the new order. And this is why it's almost like too easy, isn't it? To like to find b- scripture in the new Testament yeah. that exactly fits like so cohesively with what Micah is saying here. And so what I would draw us to is Hebrews chapter 12, which came to me as you were speaking about this. So I, let me just pull up. This is Hebrews 12 beginning of verse 12, but you have come to Mount Zion. So here we are again, that familiar language of this passage and to the city of the living God, that is Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. So we have this so consistency, which it's almost like, even if you want to judge this straight on the kind of a linguistic presentation here, you find that there's a crazy amount of overlap in right. the language that's being used to describe what's happening here and describing who Jesus is and the benefits that he provides through uh through salvation here. And what's crazy to me is that this is where I'm I'm with you, I think, in the sense that we fail to appreciate what Micah is saying because I think what he's drawing us to is God is so genius, so amazing, so otherworldly, so alien that you cannot conceive of a Trinitarian concept. And yet what God gives us through Jesus Christ by identifying with humanity is something so amazing that it should be mind blowing even on like the supernatural spectrum. Right. Like, does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the analogy that I've heard used about the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament or the doctrine of the hypostatic union in the Old Testament that I think is the most appropriate, um, not not an analogy of those things, but an analogy about how those things are present in the Old Testament, is if you walk into a room and the lights are turned off, it doesn't right. change what's in the room, right? Right. The fact that you can't see what's in the room does not change what is actually in the room. But when someone turns on the light... You can then clearly see the furniture in the room. And that's that's how the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Old Testament a lot, is it's all there. Like it's not like exactly it's not like we're reading things into the Old Testament that are not there. Instead, what you have is you have all this stuff that was there, but the lights weren't turned on. And so right. and, and this is what happened in the early church: Jesus comes, the lights are turned on. Right. He, he illuminates their minds to what is there in the scripture and how to understand it. And the doctrine of the Trinity is born not out of philosophical reflection, but out of the experience of the second person of the Trinity. And then the the re- the reinvestigating the old Testament in light of the reality of what's there. And so when, when, and I mean, this is all over the new Testament, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? That's John looking at Genesis and going, I need to understand the book of Genesis and teach it in light of what I know to be true now because of Jesus Christ. Right. Right. Uh, Colossians does that a lot. We see it here now with Micah and with Revelation. Revelation does it all over the place with uh, other prophetic books, Ezekiel, Isaiah. It's all there. You know, uh, Psalm one ten. Right. It, it seems like in the Gospels, yes. when Jesus says to them, "Well, how can the how can David be saying to the Lord, who's Lord? Like, how can David be calling the Messiah Lord?" but is also his grandfather a great grandfather right. that's that's putting their his finger on a mystery that the pharisees were already trying to figure out like there were already passages if you look at rabbinical literature there's passages where they're looking at and they're going i don't understand this i can't i can't grapple with how this is true how can this be so it's not as though jesus just like threw a question at them they'd never heard they were already right. grappling with that question and and the difference between the pharisees and the apostles is that the Holy Spirit illuminates the apostles' minds to be able to look back at the Old Testament and get the answer. Instead of looking right. at it and going, I don't know, I just can't figure it out. They look in it and they go, That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And that's what what we should be yes. seeing in this prophecies. That's Jesus right? This is about Jesus and about what he's going to do, not just on the cross. We've seen that in Micah. we've seen atonement language, we've seen foreshadowing of the cross, but in the consummation of all things, it's still ultimately, even in the prophets about Jesus.
0: Right. That should just be the clip from this episode. You sing over and over again, that's Jesus (laughs) (laughs) because it's true. Like we laugh because it seems so ironic and perhaps humorous, but the bottom line is that Jesus has always been the progenitor of salvation. So when Paul looks back and he speaks about the Israelites wandering in the desert, speaking about striking the rock, he says, and that rock was Christ. Like, so this is biblical language. Even Paul is basically affirming what you're saying in the same way, saying that's Jesus. It was always this way. You know, one of the things that I think is helpful for us as we think about the fact that Jesus has always been present he's been present in the Trinity and here we have him manifest in the old Testament Is what is the outworkings of that? And I think that might be a helpful place for us to land kind of as we conclude the conversation. Is in this particular pericope, this idea of this language of out of Zion, out of Zion come this people. There's a unified people, and the people are unified because that is Jesus. Right. That we see him unifying all of history by way of bringing about salvation, but also because he's large enough and grand enough to bring about a salvation of all tribes, all nations, all languages, like we spoke about before. Right. So, the prophet Micah in Isaiah as well, because they're contemporaries, proclaim this new era which we've been talking about, in which Jews and Gentiles are going to serve this one King. And so the oracle tells us how the temple of God, bring together all this language will be elevated to become the focus of the spiritual desire of the nations. So the peoples of the world will come to seek the revelation of God, which emanates from Jerusalem and is manifested in Jesus Christ. So Yahweh's worldwide sovereignty will issue in a worldwide judgment, which will be followed by universal peace. And so the individual will then enjoy this security, this domestic happiness. It's the language of verse 4 that's used in describing this prosperous conditions, almost the same thing of Solomon's reign in the book of Kings. And so I love that what we get out of this is not just something that's only apropos to those in Micah's time, but here we see what are the outworkings of the salvation that Jesus brings. It is a unification of all peoples together serving and worshiping one King.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I wanna I wanna look at one more spot here because we've talked a little bit about how Isaiah and Micah are very parallel. We haven't really dive, dived into the parallels that much, but I'm gonna read something out of the book of Luke, and then I want you to read verses six and seven of Micah. And so okay. I'm reading out of um, Luke chapter seven. It's the just to set the scene. John the Baptist has been put in prison. Right? Uh, right. John the Baptist. Some people paint this as like he's having a crisis of faith. I'm not sure if I buy that, but either way, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask if Jesus is indeed the Messiah or if there's yes. some coming. And this is Jesus' response. He says, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So go ahead with Micah uh, 4, 6, and 7.
0: In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. End of podcast.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, in that passage, Luke has an affinity and is vested in, demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Isianic prophecies, right? Sure. That he, from Jesus opening the scroll in the synagogue, he's reading from Isaiah. There, There's a lot of Isaiah quoted in there. But Jesus could just have easily has pointed at this section in Micah and said, well, what are you seeing, John? I've assembled the lame. Those right. that I've afflicted, I've gathered the lame will be made strong and I'm rainy. I will reign in mountain Zion. So, so all throughout this, we see it, it's not just about salvation in, in like the abstract, um, like freedom from hell sense, right? That's right. Since sort of like Charles Finney, Billy Graham, evangelism, evangelicalism, it's been mostly about salvation from hell, like get out of right. hell this free. Is integrative. And then that becomes live your best life now. Like it mutates into that. But, but what the prophets are getting at, It's not just about salvation from Babylon. It's not just about coming back to the promised land. The prophets are always driving at the eschatological hope of all people, even when it doesn't seem like they exactly understand that. I don't think that I don't think that Michael was looking at this going, yeah, well, when we come back from uh, when we come back from Babylon. Uh, you know, people who were crippled before are going to be able to walk. Like, I don't think that's what he's seeing. I think he understood like this is bigger than just the return from Babylon. And Isaiah was saying, this is bigger than, you know, when he's talking about setting captives free, it's bigger than just the captives returning. They understood that it's about Jesus and Jesus is about the eschaton, right? It's not just about temporal union with Christ. It's about the fact that we will enjoy permanent eschatological hope. And what does this say? Right. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. And now we're right back in Revelation 21, right? Revelation right. 21, 22, the Lord himself is the temple who reigns from Zion and all the peoples of the earth will worship him. It, it really is like this, this series in the prophets in Micah has really been like a huge... Uh, boost for my faith, because as much as we talk about how important the scriptures are and how cohesive they are, and we love the scriptures, this has just gotten me excited about reading through the scriptures on a broad scale in ways Mm -hmm. that I don't think that I've been before. And like uh, this, I hope this doesn't sound hopelessly like pompous, but I haven't been trained to make these connections. Like I didn't take exegetical courses in seminary. I was a church history major and a, and a systematic theology major. I didn't do old Testament, old Testament exegesis. Like, like, But you don't have to like this stuff. If you read the scriptures and you're you're paying attention to like words that overlap and concepts that overlap, this stuff just screams off the page at you. It's not that difficult to see if you're paying even a little bit attention to what you're reading and, and taking notes of themes that you're seeing. Well, this is the
0: great and wonderful graciousness of God toward us, that not only would he reveal himself in general level, revelation, but specifically in the scriptures here, when the Holy Spirit provides illumination, he does it in a way that's like completely expansive and integrative. And I think by the grace of God, we can sit here and have a conversation, conversation yeah. and say, isn't it amazing that here in Micah we are seeing the same language and then we're having kind of the same heartfelt reality that the, what's being described here is the same that Jesus describes himself, the same that Paul describes him in his epistles, the, that, the same in the way that which the author of Hebrews describes him as well. All of this is cohesive, but that is because God is so good to us yeah. that he would open our eyes to see this. Whereas I think sometimes we, we're quick to say, well, it just makes sense that sensibility comes from God himself, right. and even that is a wonderful gift. And when you receive that by way of gift, I think just like Micah, I'm with you. I think when Micah's writing this, the reason why there's so much passion, so much zealousness behind this this information, this data he, that he's delivering, even in the wake of this amazing headwind of the people being so resistant, so... so um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is so they just don't want to have anything to do with what he's saying. The reason why I think he continues to declare it is because he is so captivated by this truth. And the truth is weighty because I think even he perceives that it's not just about what's being, what's happening in the moment, but about this living hope that is the son of God. To whatever degree he understands that, to whatever degree that God has revealed it to him, I don't think there's any doubt that he recognizes that there is a living hope beyond these words that transcends the immediate environment in which he's delivering them. Yeah. And so I think we ought to marinate in what that means for us, because we have the great blessing of being on the other side of the cross. I hate that cliche, I guess, but being on the other side of everything and being able by God's grace to live in an era where we can put together these pieces and by the power of the Holy spirit, see them in the full grand arc of the story that God has delivered to us and then we ought to just worship. Like how are we not even singing right now? We yeah. should be singing all day long yeah. because of what we see manifested in the gospel and reflected and anticipated in the old Testament.
1: Yeah. You know, this isn't super related, but it's kind of related. Like <laughs> Great, I'm, I'm excited about this. <laughs> I'm right. After we are done with this podcast, I'm going to go downstairs. Yeah. I'm going to wash some dishes. But after I wash some dishes, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to join again with the Lord's people. And we're going to have Bible study and we're going to have some fellowship and we're going to share some good food. And like, what could be better on the Lord's day than taking some time to digest the scriptures, right? That the meats that God has given us, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God to digest this. And then with this excitement and this joy and the hope we have in Christ, that's, that's building in us from, from spending time in the word together to go back to God's people, for another time of fellowship and worship. Like, yeah, this is well just, I, I don't know, like, podcasting it doesn't seem like a spiritual discipline, but it really feels like, like, sometimes <laughs> it's a little bit of a spiritual discipline because it's like, yes, we're, we're doing this thing, we're, we're going through this text, something that I've never studied in depth before. And like, I'm learning all, I almost feel a little bit ashamed that like I haven't studied this and learned this stuff before because it's so significant. But like, but that's how the Holy Spirit works, right? Like, I've read Micah before but I've never read it in this depth and I've never spent the time to really get into it. And now the Holy Spirit is blessing us with this deep look at the scripture that we hadn't had before. So, I mean, we serve such yeah, a great right and glorious God who takes silly little things like two guys talking into some microphones that a couple hundred <laughs> people might listen to. And he he like changes our lives with it. it it's really quite amazing.
0: Because it would have been enough, right? If God had just given us some amazing data, some communication, right. some explanation of who he was with this passage. But he does so much more than that. Yeah. And he's bringing together some, some kind of like cohesive understanding of who he is by way of time and space and circumstance. That I want, what I want to say, I guess, is can we as Christians just allow ourselves? To embrace the excitement, like yeah. get a little bit pumped up about the fact that in Micah, in this Old Testament, almost seemingly random book, yeah, where he's talking to a particular group of people in a particular instance that here we see Christ so clearly described, yeah, if not only for the language, but then of course all the spiritual reality as well. Can we not just kind of get a little bit excited about that? Like, let our emotions kind of become just a little bit in tune with that, yeah. Not because we're trying to create some kind of high emotional response, but because. When we see something that's awesome, whether that's we hear an awesome song or we see an amazing play in some kind of sporting event, we are prone to respond and we should be no different here. So I hope people are kind of grabbing on the excitement that you and I have as we're like looking at the text and just talking because we started with like rotaries and roundabouts (laughs) and this is far more exciting and far better. And I I hope what I would really like to encourage people as we kind of, I guess, draw this to a close is that. I hope that people are doing a couple things. One is that they're involved on the Lord's day, as you said, with the people of God in the expression and the worship of God and in the sacraments. The second thing is that I hope that people outside of the Lord's day are coming together with those in their community who are brothers and sisters to spend time in the scriptures and to live life together, bringing that orthopraxy into play, the living life because our minds have been changed by the scriptures in such a way that we live together and process this stuff together. So I hope that we're doing those two things. And when I do, when we do those two things, at least for me, what I find is that the Lord injects by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the right source of the scriptures and the moving of the Holy Spirit, this excitement for who he is and what he's done. And then that changes how I behave. It literally changes how I act. So yeah. I hope that others are experiencing that too. That would be my challenge is go out and do those two things, get involved be a part of the people of God. Worship together, study the scriptures together, live together, text each other throughout the week, be and go and do be and go. Be do and the go. church. Yeah. Be the
1: church. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's Jesus. That's Jesus.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well that I think that's probably a good note to end on. Um, everybody make sure you go check out confessionalwear.com. there's some great reformed brotherhood uh, merchandise we need to get uh, on a shirt that uh, says that's jesus Um, (laughs) uh, you can get a a limited edition reformed brotherhood beer stein for just another week or two so go pick one up sign it up people and uh, until next time jesse honor everyone love the brotherhood